Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 340. Well, that escalated quickly. Recorded October 17th, no, October 14th, 2018, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. It's going to be released on the 17th. It's recorded on the 14th. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drive Time Radio for Geeks. I am your host, Mark, sometimes known as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel. And joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Oxygener Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome to the fine opiates out there. We're glad you're opiating with us this week. And uh, welcome to the geeks. If you can't tell... It's pretty obvious already. I'm not at my best tonight, so it'll be see. It'll be interesting seeing how that happens. Uh, I'm pretty tired. Just been a lot going on, but I did have some of the best news um, I've heard in a long time, and that is that the ridiculously bad Netflix show Iron Fist has been canceled. The immortal Iron Fist isn't so immortal after all. The first season was a chore to watch. It was like doing homework to watch that show. The second season is much better, which means it only sucks. Um, I haven't finished it. I'm only three or four episodes in. And now I know that there won't be a third season. I might not even bother to finish the second season. Um, Just just a a, a mediocre character at best. Let's be honest. The the Iron Fist is not one of Marvel's great characters. Uh, But just horrible, horrible casting, bad writing, the worst fight choreography ever, and I'm glad it's gone. That's all I have to say about that. You think Marvel's overdoing it a bit? Maybe this is just getting diluted amongst the huge quantity of content that they're pushing out. I don't think anybody cares at this point. It's as long as you will pay for it, we will produce it. Yeah. Hmm. It what made Iron Fist great uh, in the late 70s was the Power Man Iron Fist comic that was that teamed up and you know you you got the the white man who went to this you know asian land and struggling with who he is teamed up with with the the superhero the mark and marvel's token black superhero at the time and so you had a lot of good dynamics that made that comic awesome heroes for hire was great but other than that iron fist yeah wasn't it was the team up that made iron fist great back when i was a comic book super fan so yeah so later this week uh, i think it's friday uh daredevil season three comes out i've said before i will say again daredevil season one is some of the best television ever made regardless of netflix regardless of superheroes just some of the best television ever made the second season was okay i mean at its best it was pretty good but there wasn't a lot of its best I'm hoping they can sort of return to form with season three. Otherwise, I'm going to be done with that one. Yeah. You know, part of what made season one so great, I think, is that was the only one that they were doing. And so everybody combined for that one. And then you had, you know, they started splitting the talent pool up. And some of the others were pretty good. But, yeah, they just there wasn't that confluence of just awesome people doing awesome stuff that existed in the first season of daredevil 
All right. Uh, enough about that. Uh, Seth, I think you mentioned it on the show. I know we talked about it before, but you were, uh, oh yeah, we did talk about it because I berated you for not following my instructions. Um, your your uh, first round of experimental coffee tasting is, is coming up. Yes. Well, you know, um, I let the guy who was the coffee snob uh, kind of do the first test drinking. And of course, you know, he said he was, and so he thought it was okay. He really liked it iced. So I'm having, uh, we're making batch up actually this afternoon. And so I'm taking it to work Friday to kind of expand the, the test pool of subjects and see, see if other people like it enough to, is this, is it something that can be sold or is it just, you know, I mean, I'm not going to make it to give it away all the time, but would people actually pay for it? So we're doing, we're launching into taste tests. We're going slow, probably too slow and steady, you know, because we, we, we like today, we had a brief conversation after church that only lasted about four hours. So, uh, you know, we're, we, we're slow plotters. Is this the emergence of the new startup, Seth Bucks? <laughs> don't have a name yet, so um, don't know what. I mean, I've been thinking, what would I call it? I don't have a good name, so. But I don't know. It, it's the it's the Seth went back to work and didn't like. You know, I don't know. It's kind of that twenty years of experience versus one year of experience twenty times, and it's just like I'm forty six. I don't want to be in the help desk anymore, but. I need to do something else. So let's try to do some business type stuff and see what, if anything happens. And uh, you're in the same boat with solar panels. You're trying to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, it's solar time. It got serious this week. I actually had some solar companies come to the house and uh, man, <laughs> they're very, very thorough. Um, we've got this company near us called Nerd Power. Yeah, that's their name. And they came out in these silly painted, you know, cube-like cars. And uh, the guy's got his Nerd Power shirt on and he comes around the house and he's going to tell me everything they can do for me with solar. And I don't think he realized that I knew a lot about this already. So I tried to get him to cut to the chase and, and get to the stuff. But um, I actually learned a lot about commercial solar uh, operations this week and what companies you know will offer and what they can do and I was kind of pleasantly surprised but uh, I don't get the full proposal from them until Tuesday so um, we'll see what happens my, my goal is to put 10 to 15 kilowatt hour power off the sun to our house and in a perfect world be totally battery and off grid but um yeah, who knows? I don't know if I'm reaching for the stars and if it's not possible and money will become the prohibitive factor, but we'll find out. I mean, anything that provides a return on your investment, if you can just run your HVAC off of it, that's that's a bonus. You know, you don't have to run your whole house to see a benefit of it. Yeah, well, HVAC in Phoenix is probably 75% of your power. Right. Um, it's pretty massive, but I learned a lot about where my power drawer was and how much my, my little office here was drawing and, you know, how I had to adjust that. And we, we got our power down like 20% year on year, but there's a, there's a bill in the upcoming midterm elections here in Arizona to um, uh, 
force the local power company to be one fifty uh, percent green by twenty thirty, and it scares me what they're going to do to our power bill. Mm. So I'm trying to get a bit of a jump start on trying to get off the grid if I can possibly do it. It'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, the whole concept of the electrical dr- grid is relatively new in history. Everybody generated their own power, whatever, you know, for, for a long, long time. It wasn't always electri- electrical power, right? But whatever your power source was, you generated it yourself for eons. Uh, so, yeah, it's we all seem to think we're uh, tied to this grid, but we, we really don't have to be. Do y'all do y'all get a lot of wind there two miles where you live in Phoenix? Not really, no. We're no. fairly fairly quiet with that. But sun, we got a lot of sun, um, and I have enough roof uh, capacity, I think, to be able to generate that sort of power uh, without, you know, re-roofing with the Tesla, you know, solar panel, uh, solar shingle thing, which is ridiculously overpriced. Um, so I don't know. We'll we'll see how it plays out. I, I'll keep you guys in the loop as this sort of thing start as I start seeing these shocking price quotes. I'm expecting this week. I, I've decided it's time to put a new roof on this house. We we when we bought it, we knew the roof was 20 plus years old, and it, it was just it was time to do it. So um, you know, I, I got my finances in order, and I'm finally ready. And when I'm ready, it happens to be the week after a Category 4 hurricane hit Florida. So, turns out I'm having a hard time finding roofers, and the ones I do want to charge me my third child uh, for it. And so, it's like, fine, I'll wait a, I'll wait till January. You'll be pretty hungry and ready to, to deal by then. That's what I would do. Yep. All right, and then one other thing I just wanted to mention um, – I just this is an interesting thing to me. Um, I went to two concerts recently, professional grade concerts. Um, something I haven't done in quite a while—twenty years, fifteen years or so. Uh, I, I used to go to to concerts fairly regularly, um, and I just went well, Saturday night. I saw um, a band, two bands, one called Unspoken and one called Plum. If you're in the uh, Christian um, community, you'll recognize those names. Otherwise, you won't. But the, the, that's not the point. The point is, I realized uh, at this show that in the intervening decade and a half to two decades since I was regularly going to shows, the concept of live performance has changed pretty dramatically. Today, live means anything that that artist recorded at any point in the, the past can be called up immediately as part of the, quote, live show. Uh, back it, background vocals came out of nowhere. Whole instruments that didn't, weren't, didn't exist on stage came out of nowhere. Uh, you know, they were toggled by the sound guy at the back. Um, it was a multimedia experience. You know, there was there were screens, and this was a f- small venue. It was a ch- it was a local church. It wasn't uh, you know a, a big uh, arena rock tour, but they had a screen behind. So it's a, it's a multimedia thing, and uh, the artist is singing on stage while basically the music video is playing behind her, and and so she's lip syncing with herself. Essentially, is how that works. And it just struck me that. Um, I, I hate to, to use phrases like back in the day, but it used to be that when a, a musician stepped on stage, what you saw was what they had the ability to do on stage. If they couldn't do it, they couldn't do it. Um, and that's why, band, like, for example, anybody who, who ever heard Def Leppard live was disappointed because their live show sounded significantly different from the record because what they did on the record could not be done live. That's no longer the case today. Today, you could call up, actually, that live recording uh, or that record recording and play it with yourself live, and it counts as a live show. That, that seems a little weird to me. 
that you know when when this guy steps up to the mic and starts singing with himself that that didn't happen and and as an old guy and maybe this goes back to the the last week the the grumpy old man to me it sounded i felt cheated it's like i don't want to know what your tech guys in the back can do i want to know what you can do i want to see your skill as a performer not your skill as a producer of putting together a package that you perform along with a lot but of people don't want performances they want entertainment and so <laughs> i wonder was the were the artist even singing or were they lip syncing uh, i think for most of it they were but there were some of it they absolutely were not singing uh, like you would hear the vocals and the guy would run to the mic and he'd miss the first few words but a background singer you know that i never saw the lead guy do that uh but yeah absolutely there were tracks going on that they were pretending to sing Miles, well, a, lot of, a lot of this is because of the economic shift. I mean, the, the artists can't make any money in the recording studio releasing and publishing recordings anymore because they're just diluted on the internet and they don't make any money off Spotify and they don't make any money off distribution anymore. There's no tower records store. So it just, that whole market's disappeared. Their entire uh, income comes from their live performances. So they shift all of their resources towards what they can do to make their live performances um, compelling, you know, whatever that means, technologically, shock value, whatever they can do to make the live performance the thing because that's where they can make their money. Um, so it's almost as if the technology that they were used to using in the studio has now become the technology that they're used to using in a live mixing board. And I, I guess I'm not... I'm not mad at it. I, I get what you're saying, Seth. It's, it is about the performance and that you can give the best performance by bringing in previous performances. But at the same time, it's not what I, it's not what I went to see. It's my children and their children. It will be what they go to see. So it's that transition. I'm in transition from the way I understood things. A concert was a raw experience. You went to a bar and you saw your favorite guy and you realized he was human. He can't pull off that solo live. That makes me feel better as a musician to know that he can't do that live. And But what he did live was good. It was a fun experience, but it was not a reproduction of what he done, did in the studio. It was a different experience. Today, they just bring that studio performance in and problem solved. Uh, we it's, it's a byproduct, and nobody would ever say this, but it's a byproduct of experiencing life through not even a computer monitor, but experiencing life through a pocket television. And so that's how you listen. That's how you view. That's how you interact with your friends. I mean, you know, let's all sit around the dinner table and text each other and update everybody's Facebook and Instagram rather than put the thing down and talk. And so I don't want to see what's real. I've never experienced what's real and I don't want to start now. So if I go there in person, I want you to give me the exact same thing I get if I'm looking at this overpriced hunk of rock in my pocket. <laughs> so, I mean, part of it is genre bending, right? So in, in pop, you know, Britney Spears has lip synced forever and, and, and uh, Michael, uh, Michael Bieber, Justin Bieber has lip synced forever and everybody expects that it's part of the show. You know, it's going to happen. But rock has always been the bastion of doing it the hard way. And, and I guess as, as a rock aficionado and an old guy, I'm a little bummed that rock has, has bowed to the let's just overdub stuff. Yeah, but it's generational. I mean, yeah. you know, we probably consider 
the genesis of rock. I mean, I'm not talking about the Beatles and Elvis, and I'm I'm thinking the '70s, Led Zeppelin, right. you know, Sabbath, that sort of thing. That's kind of the genesis of that rock genre, and then it was you know turned in the '80s and glammed up a bit, and then the '90s it was grunged up a bit, and and then it got really over compressed and pushed out through bands and so on, and and since then it's really been competing against other genres for attention. I mean, it can't, it can't win against hip hop and rap. It just hasn't. Uh, and what's left is a kind of a, a limited version of what it was supposed to be. And yeah, the, it, you're right. It's studioed out. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a fan of music myself, the way it's gone myself, but I'm lucky enough to, you know, I went and saw Joe Bonamassa a few months ago and the guy was incredible. And he did it with two Fender Tweed amps and a number of guitars and a band that was some of the best musicians in the world. And there was nothing that was special effect. It was yeah. purely him and it was incredible. Uh, yeah, it, they're still out there and we have to support these guys. If you can see those sorts of artists, you know, yeah. support them. I went and bought a T-shirt that I can't wear and wouldn't wear if i could but just to support the guy because i know the merch is where they make their money yeah like the, the first i'm a bass player and, and this was supposed to be a two-minute conversation we're going way long but uh, uh that's the instrument i pay attention to and i and i intentionally put myself second row stage left uh stage right because i knew that's where the bass player i mean when we walked in the room that's where the bass player was it was a uh, general seating so I, I didn't have to pick ahead of time and so we sat there um, and the first guy came out clearly using an octaver. So uh, what he, his, everything he played was bent down at least an octave. He was playing pitches that can't be played. Um, and that really doesn't bother me. That's a pedal effect. At least I was hearing his performance. Second guy comes out and goes to a bass synth. He's got a bass guitar behind him, but it's behind him. It's not strapped to him. He walks up to a synthesizer and starts playing the bass line. Uh, again, octaves lower than you could actually play with all kinds of effects. And that still counts as the baseline. And, you know, I just, it was a real get off my lawn moment. I realized how old I was. All right, moving on from Before that. Before we go on, Yo, I've, okay. I've got, I have to put this in the opening. I can't believe I forgot about it. I had one of the greatest experiences ever uh, Friday afternoon when I went to lunch. And it's bacon cheesecake. Ooh. You have my attention. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as awesome as that sounds, you should have been there. <laughs> it was it was cheesecake with caramel drizzled in bacon, and I mean it was worth every penny I paid for it. Every stomach stretching, I'm too full. I might puke. I made myself finish it because it was cheesecake and it was bacon, and it was a restaurant I had to myself because what normal person goes to lunch at 2.30, and it was it was all, all I could have hoped it would be and more. <laughs> so bacon cheesecake, people, it's a thing. And if, if you're asking why, you really need to find a different podcast to listen to, I think. <laughs> we don't need so, this so, kind of negativity in our life. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. I can't believe I forgot to put that in the warm up. Uh, but I just I was like, oh my gosh, I have to share this. It's the reason the show exists. All right. So this next one, you know, from time to time, we like to do these thought experiments. So uh, picture, if you would, a uh, totalitarian state um, uh, that has been run by generations of paranoid totalitarian leaders um, 
who uh, have been known to uh, accuse other nations of spying have been active in spying themselves uh, unabashedly uh, openly active in spying and suppose that totalitarian nation state uh, somehow through extreme amounts of negligence becomes the primary manufacturer for the world and this totalitarian state that is the manufacturer for the world makes all the electronics for all of their enemies would you be surprised if said hypothetical totalitarian state somehow put spy code in the stuff that they're designing for the rest of the world well apparently the u.s government was when china did that very thing yeah in to uh it wasn't spy code so much as it was a miniaturized computer added to a chip that didn't appear on any of the blueprints for the chip so it was they put hardware onto existing hardware and then sent that out among the world to phone home uh and so there's a couple of stories that this story was all over the web like a week or two ago um the one that i really like is bloomberg's article and we'll link to it in the show notes um the thing about this article that's really cool at the top of the page it shows what the board looks like completed and then it starts stripping away components and you're left with the foreign device and of course china has denied all um you know all knowledge in it but you're left and at first you think that's a speck of dust on my monitor and it isn't it's just it's that small and so you know this isn't the first time that whenever you outsource your manufacturing you know remember the it's been a couple of years ago the usb picture monitors that came preloaded with um, spyware on them and you know and this is always the great fear is that if you if you don't have control, if you don't have physical control of it, something you don't have control over it. And, you know, and of course we're, it's easy to pick on China, but Hey, let's be honest. This could have just as easily have been done. Um, when these art, when these articles were on the container ship or when they came aboard the dock, they could have been intercepted by a different spy agency and had this hardware put on them. So there isn't proof that it happened in China, but, um, you know, it was just, it was an interesting article. And we, we talk all the time about security and being tinfoil hat, tinfoil visor, and you can do everything right. But if you don't manufacture the hardware, and if you don't personally vet everybody who is involved in all the component manufacturing up to assembling, then how easy is it for a different an enemy, whether you're talking about a different corporation, a different nation state, a different person, whatever, to sneak someone in to some point of your supply chain and intersect and add things to it. Or suppose what they did was, if they didn't even add anything, if they just took the manu- the uh, processor chips that were being made and just made a couple of innocent mistakes on a batch of processors that you know reduce the number of um that reduce how much sand was actually being processed and if that's what runs your crypto um encryption then all of a sudden your encryption isn't as strong because you thought you had you know an i58 running at 78 petawatts but instead you have an i7 running at two gigahertz and but because all of the rest of the all the silicon on it was kind of cut off because of poor manufacturing but it wasn't poor it was a targeted attack and so if you don't control the hardware 
do you control your device and all your base are belong to us? Well, let me be the contrarian um, because I have some super micro servers, not, not many. Most of our gear that we host is Dell, uh, but I have a couple. So I did look into this in detail because it's kind of close to home for me. Um, the first thing is the Bloomberg article quotes anonymous sources who are yet to actually disclose who they are. And immediately the red flags up, this could be fake news. Now, having said that, I had to deep dive this in the last week or so because we have clients that are requiring us for HIPAA compliance or for Sarbanes or PCI or MilSpec or whatever other regulations that we have to conform to. Um, I had to get on top of this because I have to answer to them in the boardrooms. You know, if they get freaked out that we're hosting their assets and they hear this story on the news, I've got to be able to answer to it. So what do I do as a, as a data center DevOps kind of guy, my immediate place to go to, to find out what exactly is going on is Bruce Schneier. Now, if you guys know Bruce Schneier, he's a legend in the security world and I went straight to the response that was coming from the InfoSec community on this. And the first thing I'm hearing is Apple and Amazon, like with AWS, are denying that this problem even ever exists, that it's a whole lot of BS. So I thought, well, that's, well, okay, fair enough. Look, you know, they're, bi they're, they're biased, right? They're not going to want to say, oh, we've got problems. They're going to say, no, we don't. So uh, I'll take that with a grain of salt, but, it, but I'll take it. So I went out to Schneier's uh, blog, and he's looking at going, well, yeah, supply chain infiltration is plausible, but I see no evidence that it actually ha happened here. Nobody has physically shown evidence that this happened. This is a story from anonymous sources with no credible backing, there's no InfoSec people who have been able to obtain the hardware and, and reverse engineer it and break down the pieces of it. It's a story on the news to sell newspapers. I'm looking at, they're saying it's not real. And this is coming from the independent InfoSec community. I then looked up people like Krebs, like Brian Krebs, you know, his Krebs on security blog. He's basically parroting the same story. It's an interesting story. Yes, supply chain hacking is a plausible situation. We have seen small amounts of evidence with this before. Huawei, uh, whatever they the phone, thank you, the phone guys, they were caught, you know, doing this sort of thing. But Supermicro, there's still not a lot of evidence to say this actually happened. In fact, what really happened was the Supermicro stock price went down, 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 enabling those who could see its bottoming to come in like vultures and buy it up and make bazillions of dollars of money on it. And you've got to wonder whether or not this is manipulated story. So I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not calling BS on the story. I'm just saying... I have no credible evidence yet to validate it other than what is being read on the internet and I don't believe what I read on the internet. Seth, you looked like you were going to say something. Oh, no, I was just, I was waiting for you to give uh -huh. your spill. Uh, I, I think it's entirely plausible and that's why people are freaked out about it. Um, Miles, you're correct. There is no 
uh, substantive evidence at this point, um, that sort of evidence would be very difficult to come by. And so we're kind of in a situation where we have to prove a negative. So somebody's got to uh, find one of these alleged motherboards, find the chip on it that they can't recognize, reverse engineer that chip, find the logic in the chip, and verify that it's up to something nefarious before this is real. So that's the kind of thing that could happen. It could take a long time to happen if it ever happens. Um, But at the same time, it's the plausibility of it that makes people concerned. Because these things are so complicated, even to d- the designers of it, the, the people who uh, handed the specs off to the uh, the manufacturers, the manufacturers who are making them, um, you know, this is this could be a mistake made somewhere in the design process. This could be a mistake somewhere made in the manufacturing process. This could be intentional subterfuge. Um, it's the fact that that um, you read the story and you think oh, that makes sense. That's what scares people. It's not far-fetched. It's not out, uh, um, outlandish. And, you know, as I introduced it, we are dealing with a nation-state that has proven to be difficult and contrary and paranoid for generations, not just recent, you know, for, for generations of its leadership. Uh, and so it seems totally plausible. So then the, the question you have to ask is, so what are you going to do about it? Maybe this is a, if it is um, manufactured, the goal could be to, to swoop in and make money. But I think let's, let's, let's just assume it's real. What's the solution? Well, the solution is make your own stuff. Or is it? Because can you even, is there, is there a point at which you could trust somebody enough to, to make their own stuff? You know, and, and I mean, the system is so complicated, it can't be policed, I guess is my point. Well, okay, so here's this sort of, it's a very interesting situation because this applies to a lot of of things we've spoken about on past shows. Do you, will tariffs against China have any effect other than prodding the bear and now all of a sudden we're being demonstrated how dangerous that might be? I mean, if the fact is that if we create an, uh, a hostile e- uh, economic relationship with a trading partner that has this level of control, would this not be a great way of actually sending a scary message to the US administration and the US citizenry to say, maybe you don't want to mess around with us guys, you know, because look what we could do to your super microcomputers, let alone your phones, let alone your IoT devices, let alone your routers and so on. And at some point, you know, yeah, they got, they got us. Are we going to, are we all willing to pay four to five times as much for our technology and kick all their stuff out and retrofit in the, the American made ones because we feel safer? I don't think so. And would doing so even make us safer? Uh, it would, it, you know, it's, it would be a little bit of, I think, security theater to use a Bruce Schneier ism. Um, it's even, even if we moved it all in house, there's no way to to uh, keep bad actors out of it. The only way to the the way to vet this is at the network level. You watch what the network is doing and you look for runs because you know what good does it do to edit your data to, to have this chip on there if you can't exfiltrate it in some way. So you watch your data. Um, 
and I, and I assume there are people doing that re- very closely right now, and and we'll hear about it either on the positive or on the negative at some point. Uh, but the the whole thing just illustrates how how helpless we are. We are at the the um, whims of several people down the line: the designers, the manufacturers, the um, the shippers, the the assemblers. You know, the, uh, and there's not a lot we can do. Even if we moved it in house. And did everything American, we just could have American people doing this instead of Chinese people doing it. It exposes a weakness in the Western ideology, in the Western methodology, and that is trust. Because in the Western world, it's an, in, it, it's an assumed thing to trust your trading partner. It's not an assumed thing to do that if you're living in Russia. Mm-hmm. It's not an assumed thing to do that if you're living in China. You mistrust everything until it is proven that it's safe to do business. We don't do that. We're an open arms trading economy, and we welcome all comers, and we trust everybody until they treat us badly. And that is a weakness that in a state of war you cannot have. And it's only... I would say the only time I've seen that not apply in the Western world is inside the military. If you work inside the military, you immediately don't trust anybody, and that's how you operate. Well, that's how the standard operating procedure of Russia and China is. They don't trust anybody, and the fact that we do is a weakness. Right. Yeah, I mean, not just in, in trade, uh, Miles, you've, you've stepped into something that, you know, in terms of sociology and, and whatever is, is sort of a, a fascination of mine. Um, Western culture, uh, U.S., uh, most of Europe, uh, is an extremely high-trust society. If, you, if my neighbor comes to me and borrows my lawnmower, the expectation on both sides is he will bring that lawnmower back in roughly the same condition it was with roughly the same amount of gas in it. And if there is some damage that is done he will volunteer to um, repair it or replace it. That's the assumption. That's what we go into. And that's a, that's a, you know, a kind of a trivial example, but we live our whole life based on that trust because, you know, what, there's lots of reasons for it. When we, when we came over to this country, we were, um, we needed each other to, uh, to live. And even the indigenous people here, it was a, a harsh uh, land the the people who were here uh, indigenously ha- had a high trust culture the people who came over had to adopt a high trust culture but you go to other places i'm not uh, trying to be offensive just saying like it is like for example turkey they have a much lower trust culture there and you know in to use my same example if you loan your lawnmower to the to your guy in turkey and he beats it up and brings it back to you well you're the idiot for loaning him the the lawnmower and and there's nobody's wrong there. Nobody's at fault there. It's just a difference in cultures, and yeah. And so you are looking at a difference there when you have a global economy with differences in cultures that are that huge. Uh, there's it's kind of amazing we haven't run into more problems like this. Maybe we have, and we just don't know it. That's true. Well, it's it, it's counter to productivity. The problem is if you start implementing security and lack of trust in your in your trade model you're not going to make any money because if you have to cross-check every single thing, you're going to create so much bureaucracy and so much um, you know, regulation and all the things that are kind of counter to economic viability. And that doesn't work in our economy. It, it can't. Um, if you've ever tried to do business with the military, you'd know exactly how that works. It's you're going to be checked and double-checked and triple-checked and you've got 15 levels of paperwork and all this sort of stuff before you can even 
get a contract to begin the process. Um, you know, we, it doesn't work that way in the in the regular free market here. So until we adopt uh, a, a willingness to slow things down, pay a lot more money for things and to vet and trust and, and sanctify every single thing that we own and use, this problem ain't going away. Yeah. Go ahead, Seth. Well, no, I was just going to say that's true. And we, you know, we, because this is, we are after the cheapest and the thing that is best for the short side. You know, we've, we've talked about, this is a long running theme on the podcast of people chasing the quarter returns instead of the long-term interest of the company. And, and that be true, whether it's a company, a person, uh, you know, a family, a nation or whatever, because it was, it was cheaper in the short term to, you know, not pay the American worker, but pay the Chinese worker. So now we've introduced, and again, it's not that if we brought everything over to America, there would still be the same, opportunities because a nation state could easily intercept a truck and you know and in a couple of hours have that truck back on the road and just say it was a customs inspection at wherever you know uh or hey you know it was it was speeding and we suspected a stolen report or whatever so we've just there would still be the same chances for bad actors and again people countries because there are there are companies and corporations that have the resources to do this we just assume it was china and again like miles said there's been no hard evidence given just a lot of stuff said it it couldn't i mean it could just as easily if you want to talk nations it could have been america on this side doing it because it was looking out for something or it could have been a rival company doing it to try to get something so we just assume it was china but the same opportunities for sabotage would be here the only difference is it would be a shorter supply chain thus more easily noticed so miles you you jumped into the the whole game theory uh, john nash's equilibrium postulates uh, we we could talk uh, for several hours about how uh it's in everybody's best interest to make sure everybody succeeds in complex uh systems like that but the fact is that there is always the first betrayer advantage and and we may just be seeing this you know we don't know um and we're we're kind of rambling around and around here and so i want to wrap this up but i just want to reiterate that the for me the most frightening part is the the unknowability of it uh, it's almost impossible to prove this negative but it's entirely plausible and that's what's that's that's what has people frightening and that's the world in which we live as as systems get more complex this is going to become the norm that we're we're just going to have to trust something someone some entity maybe even some self-writing ai and just hope for the best. Welcome well, to the future. Yeah. Uh, and look, there's another social, cultural, psychological angle on this. And that is that when we, in, in, when we implemented and embraced the internet, the inter part is important. That's international. And the percentage of people in the United States that have never got a passport, have never left this country... Half of them never left their hometown, and yet they they are willing to stand on high and say, 
I can be the, the manager of procurement for XYZ Corporation, and they're dealing with other countries, other cultures, other methodologies, other beliefs, other ideologies, and they have no idea about it, is the reason why this will fail. Case in point, the Iraq War, we went in there on the second round of going in, you know, in 2003 or whatever it was, and we destroyed Saddam Hussein and yay us. And then we, we inherited a smoking mess because hardly anybody over there in the leadership knew what a Sunni or a, or a Shiite was. They didn't know the, the geography. They didn't know the ideology. They didn't know the culture. And it cost us big time. And nobody looks at that war and says that was a successful endeavor. It wasn't. It was poorly planned, poorly established. And this is exactly the same thing when you do business with another country. You've got to understand the ideology. You've got to, it takes a long time to do that. And it's not going to come from somebody who just graduated with a, uh, you know, an MBA out of XYZ University who's never left their hometown except to go to college. I have a huge problem with this lack of international awareness. And I think that until we get that, we are going to be victims to this. Seth, your final thoughts? No, I was going to say he's very true, you know? So, yeah, you can't offload the responsibility of not doing something to someone else without dealing with the consequences of not doing something. So, you know, yay, we gave up responsibility of manufacturing and controlling America so we get to deal with the consequences of other people jacking with our stuff. Until the AIs run the world, that's just the way yeah. it's going to be. Read your Asimov, people. It's an it's inevitable. inevitable. Uh, so, Seth, what happened this week in history? All right, Mark. I wanted to let you and all of the other great opiates know that on October the 17th, 1990, the Internet Movie Database launched. So, IMDb originated with a Usenet posting by British film fan and computer programmer Cole Needham entitled Those Eyes about actresses with beautiful eyes. Others with similar interests soon responded with additions or different lists of their own. By late 1990, this list included almost 10,000 movies and television series correlated with actors and actresses appearing therein. And then on the 17th of October 1990, Needham developed and posted a collection of Unix shell scripts, which could be used to search the four lists and thus the database that would become the IMDB was born. At the time, it was simply known as rec.arts.movies movie database. And that happened this week in history, Mark. And now, back to you. 1990. Yes. The year we graduated from high school. Yes. One of the greatest websites in the history of the internet. Yeah, I use it weekly, at least uh, once a week. Uh, yep. It is a regular part of my, because uh, it's everything. everything, And it's, uh, unlike Wikipedia, everybody just assumes it's authoritative. Right. Well, yeah, if it's in an IMDb, it's absolutely true. Nobody questions it. Well, IMDb, oh, question solved. Uh, you say Wikipedia, we've just started a whole new discussion. IMDb, no, we're, we believe you. That's interesting. And maybe it's because it's less important. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff in Wikipedia that's not important. Why is it that we consider one so authoritative and another not? Because theoretically, we could go to that episode of that show or that movie and see, yes, that is so-and-so there. Whereas Wikipedia, you know, it depends, was 
are you doing the conservative bias viewpoint or are you doing the liberal <laughs> bias viewpoint or are you a flat earther or, you know, did the moon land? So there's just all kinds of garbage in Wikipedia. It, I, I'm not going to spend any time on this, but I honestly can't believe I, I can't believe it. I, I refuse to allow the thought to take uh, uh, form in my mind that flat, er flat earther is a thing. I just, I reject your reality and substitute my own. It cannot be possible that there is actually such a thing as a flat earther. Uh, and now, having said that, Seth, what do you have this week to lower my productivity, thus making you seem like a better keeping on? I got to come up with something better. You, or you got to quit your job. One or the <laughs> okay, well, this could help you and everybody else listening to the show quit their job, thus opening up the world to a new round of better hires, maybe. So, um, groundfloor.us, this is actually a serious website. This is a real estate investing website that is open to non-accredited investors. And of course, do your own research, um, all investment, these are our opinions for entertainment purposes only, blah, blah, blah. Um, but so it's just a website where they give loans to people doing construction and you can invest as little as $10 in those and they pull that money and you can get it and you can earn interest. So don't take a mortgage on your house and invest in here and hope to be rich tomorrow. But you know, if you got $20, $30, throw there and hey, you might make, you know, 20 or 30 cents in interest. So groundfloor.us for your, for the budding real estate tycoon in us all. <laughs> It, Cue it, the great sucking sound of money coming down the toilet. It says something about the world we live in that the the very first sentence on the website has an asterisk at the end of it. And I scanned while you were talking. I can't find where that asterisk goes. But uh, it says, we can nail down over 10% returns for you. Asterisk. I don't know what that means, but uh, it means we can't actually do it. That's what that means. <laughs> well, no, it just basically means that, you know, it's as any investment, there is a degree of risk. Do your own research, blah, blah, right. blah. Right. So, there's all right, that's no interesting. Without risk, that's fair enough. Yeah. I'm a big fan of micro investing in that way because it's, uh, it's throwaway money that could change your life, but probably won't, but might change somebody else's life. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I decided to join this over the week or last week. And I mean, I'm not going to do all my money, but you know, 20 or $30 and package it in one of those loans. And the way it's set up, there's two different ways. Some of them you get paid monthly, others you get it at the end. Um, Cause like a lot of these are people who are flipping houses and don't want to go to a bank for a mortgage. They, you know, uh, so they get a loan from here, they renovate the house, they sell it, they pay back their loan. And then, you know, the website uh, makes its cut and then the loan, and of course, I mean, if the loan goes bad, the it is backed by real estate that they can then possess and, you know, foreclose on and all that kind of stuff. So again, you know, don't quit your day job um, unless you put money in here and get a lot of returns, then maybe quit your day job. Just don't quit it tomorrow. So, you know, and, and there are other ways too, that you can micro invest that you can pitch in. 20 30 50 dollars that you know it's not going to change your life but it might change somebody else's life and one of those is elementopi.com slash patreon where you can go there and pitch in 20 50 100 dollars it's not going to change your life but it could very well change my life um and so that's a micro investment pay for what you like if you like what we do patreon.com slash elementopi or elementopi.com slash patreon p-a-t 
R-E-O-N. Uh, it's a way for you to be become a patron. Patronage used to be a thing. Um, if if an artist produced art that people liked, people would pay him, not for an artist, uh, not for a painting. They wouldn't pay him, uh, commission a painting and say, "You paint this, I will pay you this." They they patronized him. They paid him money so that he could paint because they believed that beautiful things needed to exist in the world. That's what Patreon is. If you believe in what we do, if we like what we do, you're not paying for an episode. You're patronizing me so that I can produce episodes. You're becoming a supporter, a sponsor. You're paying my bills so that I can continue doing the thing that you like. Patreon.com slash LMNOP. Check it out. We are the Banksy of podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast will not self-destruct in 30 (laughs) seconds. Um, If you have a thought about what we've said tonight, if you have many thoughts, if you want to be a, a, a... Contributor to this show in ways other than financially, you can go to elementopi.com slash elementopi.com. Click the contact us button at the top of the page. Um, answer the world's hardest captcha. Uh, fill out the form there, and uh, that will come to me, and I will read it. I promise. I read all of them, unless they get spammed uh, by Google, and I never know that they're there. But everything that comes to me, I read. Uh, or you can go to the five five nine dial five nine nine. I am Opie. Um, in in anywhere that's a free call uh, in the U.S. Anyway, uh, well. It's free if you use a free service. It doesn't cost you. Anyway, 559-IMOP, leave us a voicemail, and uh, and we'll probably play it on the show. But we like hearing from you. Like We like knowing what you say. Jinda, thanks for hanging out with us in the chat room. We can always count on you. It would be nice to have 15 or 20 friends there with you on a regular, base, uh, regular basis. Uh, 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 contributing to the show we record every sunday night around uh, 7 30 p.m eastern time you can go to elementopi.com slash live to watch that join the chat room um which is at irc.freenode.net i think it is uh slash uh, it's the pound element op channel or just go to elementopi.com live and, and you'll see it right there uh but anyway we we appreciate you hanging out with us uh miles seth as always thank you for being the excellent co-host that you are And you, the listener, thank you for being the excellent listener that we are. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next week. And remember, pay for what you like.